And then the other thing that I've learned along the way is uh, the need to be pragmatic. You know, there's optimal and then there's realistic. I'd say in every situation, you're sacrificing what you think might be optimal in order to, to get the job done with the specific athlete in front of you. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, performance and clinical nutritionist, and this is season number seven. Today, we're talking all things body composition, from fight sports like MMA and boxing to elite bodybuilders and the general public. You'll hear clips from four experts in today's show. First, Dr. Corey Peacock from the USA will talk about weight making in the MMA and the importance of understanding the energy demands of your sport. Next, Dr. Scott Robinson, PhD, performance nutritionist and physiologist from England, will be on with former boxing champion Scott Quigg. You'll hear Scott Robinson walk you through key strategies for making weight, and you'll hear from boxing champ Scott Quigg on the athlete's perspective, what it actually feels like and takes to make weight. Next, we'll keep globetrotting across to Shanghai, China, to hear from Dr. Reed Real, head of performance nutrition at UFC Shanghai, to hear his insights, tips, and tricks for leaning out amongst the best athletes in the world. And finally, you'll hear from Dr. Eric Helms in New Zealand, who'll discuss the tactics and strategies used by elite bodybuilders to get lean, and how that can translate to the general population and coaches listening in as well. Loads of great evidence-based insights in today's show from these clips from past seasons, and maybe more importantly, really highlights where the rubber meets the road, applying those evidence-based insights into practice. All right, let's do this. Enjoy the show. Corey, everything starts with understanding the physical demands of sport. And of course, as a physiologist and a sports scientist, you've worked with a wide range of athletes. So what are the physical demands here for mixed martial arts fighters? Well, I think mixed martial arts is a, a very tricky uh, sport to really pinpoint. I think realistically, if you put 10 of the, you know, 10 people that I consider physiological experts and exercise physiologists, I think their understanding and their explanation of the demand of the sport would be different. And I think that's what really has drawn me, and I think that's what's really drawn me to the sport is that idea that, that I was, you know, the way I analyzed the sport five years ago is different than how I analyze the sport now. It's it's evolving, the sport's changing, and with those demands, I think you you really get into a situation where it's it's difficult to pinpoint just exactly what the demands are. Um, you know, when you look at the setup of the actual sport of MMA, you're looking at three five-minute rounds, uh, five five-minute rounds if we're looking at a title fight. So I think that's always going to influence what we're doing in terms of our, our metabolic preparation uh, to, to meet those demands. But realistically, when you look at the sport, you know, there, there's a lot of literature out there that's broken down the sport into basically a, a more of a glycolytic sport where you're looking at about 15 seconds of high-intensity effort followed by about 45 seconds of active recovery, gaining position, and, and those kind of things. So. You know, I think that gives you a, a foundation of where to begin with the sport. Um, but but as I've started to, and, and maybe it's just the style of our team. You know, I've I've really started to heavily implement alactic work, especially the closer that we get to the fight, because I believe that the the style that the majority of the fighters that I'm coaching is, you know, we're we're known as you know power strikers, pressure fighters. Uh, we have a great kickboxing coach. And, and everything really focuses on the the finishing of the fight, the knockout, the, the, the first shot. So, um, you know, a lot of demands go into the sport when you look at the, the different facets of the striking and the grappling and, and everything that goes into it. And for a guy like Kamaru, in terms of, obviously you mentioned, you know, making weight is a huge part of the whole process. Uh, for some athletes, more challenging than others. Are there certain strategies that you used, um, that you tend to use with your athletes, or that perhaps you use specifically with Kamaru to prepare for that last fight? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's a little bit different. We're going we're gonna to do a lot of metabolic testing and understand what substrates our athletes are, are thriving off of. Um, you do have different backgrounds. That's one thing I will say is, you know, I don't, you, you got to be careful in a sport like this because 
if you think about the real data, and, and you know, maybe there's some listeners that aren't aware of this. I can give you, I'll give you, so I have a 170-pounder fighting in UFC London who actually just weighed in this morning. And I can give you basically his full camp data starting from eight weeks out. In our eight-week evaluation, he weighed 194 pounds. He was 6.2% body fat. Three weeks out, he was 185 pounds at 4.7%. And in my mind, that's where we wanted him to be. That's where we want him to fight is that 185 to about 186 mark. So realistically, Mm -hmm. going into this week, fight week, we did everything we could to maintain that body weight. So he goes into fight week at about 184 pounds, give or take, and holds that to about 182 going into those last 24 hours. So last night, you know, 24 hours ago, he was weighing 182 pounds. He weighed in this morning at 171 pounds. And, you know, I just talked to him recently. He's been off the scales for about five hours. He's back up to about 181 pounds. So we're through our fluid uh, intake portion of the cut. And now we're starting to go carbohydrate heavy and trying to keep him hovering at about that 185 mark that he spent the last three weeks of his fight. I always think that's a tricky thing where you look at these guys and, you know, I don't know exactly what the, I don't know, maybe it's just an overlooked aspect where everybody focuses so much on making the weight. In my mind, I get it. It's, it is a, it is a tough part. I never want an athlete to claim a tough weight cut on their performance. I never want a weight cut to dictate their performance. But at the end of the day, these guys will make weight. They'll find a way to make weight. It might not be pretty. It might not be what people want to see or how it should done but they can make weight i think the the missing aspect on it is really that refuel and and understanding how to get the athletes back to where they were in camp with the same amount of foods but putting it in the right order and making sure that we are achieving things like glycogen restoration and and, and all of those things that we really want with it and um you know i think people miss that aspect a lot where let's just say for instance you know danny's was weighing 185 for the bulk of his camp now what happens if it's up to 205. That's like wearing a 10-pound weight vest when he goes in a fight, something he's not used to training with. Or Absolutely. Of, let's say he gets up to 178. Now now does he feel as strong as he was? Does he feel as powerful as he was? So I think that's a, it's a really important strategy to make sure we're doing that. Um, in terms of the strategies that I follow, I really like, uh, you know, I have a percentage-based approach to it. But I just think, you know, hearing those numbers, I think people out there would be losing their minds thinking, wait, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> How much did he lose yet? You know what I mean? And I think people lose their minds with that. And, and, you know, and I think that's a good lesson for anybody out there that really wants to work in the sport of MMA and at the highest level. You have to be aware of, you know, really two things. One, what is your weight cut history? What are you comfortable with? What have you done in the past? Because I can't come in there and say, what you're doing, you know, I can't listen to that and say, well, well, that's not right. That's not how I do it. Well, listen, that's a 20, that's a world champion fighter who's 23 and three. You're going to lose interest right away. You have to, you have to understand that there is something to what they're doing that has benefited them to be able to do that. So it's really mm-hmm. contribution and trying to improve upon what they've already done in the past. And, and realistically, the second thing is, you know, you have to understand that there's not a lot of data on these guys. There's not a lot of research. You know, and you go out there and you look at things like cellular dehydration. You know, research and literature tells you that, you know, depleting two to three percent of your cellular water is is going to be detrimental to your performance. Well, yes, that that might be what we've read, and that might be in eighteen to twenty-two year old physically active recreational college students. But has that been done in these fighters? And 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 that's the one thing that you have to understand is they they are different. They have the ability to lose upwards of five to six percent body weight in that last twenty-four hours and still go out there and be beaters and world champions and, and all of those things. So it's it's a nasty aspect of the sport. It really is. It's something that I think is mind-boggling to a lot of people and and things that and in my mind too, we've gotten better. That's the one thing I will say. There were some pretty brutal strategies when I first got here. Um, you know, we're, we're still, it's still a work in progress. It's still something that, that we want to keep improving on, you know, not only for our fighters' performance, but also just the health and well-being and safety and the long-term effects of metabolism and all of these fighters. 
For sure. And, you know, as you mentioned, they're kind of the art of the practice of taking that evidence base and being able to just apply what you can to upgrade what the athlete's already doing to, to kind of move the needle in the right direction. And, and Corey, you, you talked about kind of that post way in to, to fight night, um, the nutrition strategy being key there. Are there one or two things that for you um, really stand out that you want to get in, whether it's early fueling or a certain, you know, carbohydrate range or, or fueling range that you're looking for? Yeah, well, we, uh, so, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, to have a lot of great nutrition experts around me that have, you know, helped implement the, these strategies. Um, the one thing that I would say is probably a staple to our, to our rehydration protocols would be the, uh, would be the Celtic sea salt. Um, we've had a lot of success with that. Uh, some people have a hard time with it, so we may have to go with the Himalayan in that first rehide, but, you know, really. Basically, the first thing we have to do is just work backwards. You know, the, the last portion of the weight cut, we pulled water. We pulled whatever amount of sodium was left in the box. So we have to get that back in there first. That has to be a priority. Um, after that, we typically go with a supplement known as Vitargo, um, great carbohydrate source, and we're going to put that in second. So the idea is let's get sodium levels back. Let's try to absorb some of the water that, that we've lost throughout that cut, and then Let's get let's get the glycogen back up. You know, those two things to me are the the, the key points that you have to be able to regulate properly. Um, with that said, I think that that fluid intake and that volume has to be regulated based on basically what the athlete's done all week. You know, how much weight were they losing each training session? How much weight were they putting on during things like water loading? Depending on whether or not they're, you know, some of the some of my larger athletes are aggressive water loaders. Uh, some of my middle size athletes are not as big for their weight class are moderate water loaders and some of the guys that you know stay relatively close to fight weight don't have to go to that extreme at all so you know it, you really have to base it off of what their individual practices and and what we've developed over time and, and to be honest with you it takes time I, do i think what myself are doing is absolutely 100 percent correct no and do I think every weight cut goes the same? No, it doesn't. I mean, there, there's different things. There's small there's changes in environment, changes in time zone. You know, di these things really have affected our fighters. I, I think it's really strange, you know, just an observation. We were, we, we've changed training facilities down here in South Florida where we're now in a, you know, a brand new, beautiful state-of-the-art warehouse, but there's no cooling system. Um, you know, it's and it's it's brutal down here. So, you know, we put the doors up and, and I'll be honest with you, our guys pretty consistently are losing anywhere from about six to nine pounds per practice. And I'm starting to find all of those guys that really used to rely heavily on the water loading as part of their, their weight cut. We're, we're kind of, uh, eliminating it now. It, and, and I think it's a change it, to me. It's, it's the environment, that humidity that's in the room and, and that practice grind of them losing so much weight every single session that you don't really have to do it anymore. The body's used to losing that much weight. So even throwing them in a sweatsuit, put them down in a room and you're losing three or four pounds quickly. And so, you know, it's something, it's something that's a, it's a new observation. Um, you know, I'm not a hundred percent certain that's what it is, but I would, I would have to think it's this, this new environment and this humidity. So it's, it's interesting to watch some of these changes, um, you know, bring my fighter fighting in London this week this is the first time that you know after his first workout over there and i saw how much he lost i was like don't you don't need to water load just just normal with that keep your fluid intake the same and we actually cut it out and you know this has been one of the easiest weight cuts he's had so far if we kind of fast forward through the process now and you're getting into that week before weigh-in how does the nutrition strategy change in that final week? Doc, can you walk us through maybe some of the you know, old school traditional strategies that have been used by fighters for a long time that are you know, potentially problematic versus some yep. of the more evidence-based approaches that you're using with uh, fighters yeah, like uh, it's, uh, Yeah, some kind of crazy, crazy stories out there really. Um, and I think, you know, that's where it's been great for me to come in. And I've said to Scott before, it's, you know, I see this as obviously a job, um, but, at the same time, the best part about it for me is just helping Scott and, and the other guys be able to do it well, but be able to do it safely as well, because there's a lot of dangerous practices out there. It's not uncommon that there's uh, you know, a lot of kind of prolonged sauna use, uh, sweatsuit use. Um, you know, I've seen it before where guys are killing themselves in the gym the night before the morning of the kind of weigh-in. 
putting their bodies through, you know, kind of traumatic stress right before a time they're going to put it through stress again in the ring. Um, you know, just not eating. Sometimes athletes just won't eat at all. Uh, and then sometimes they can't sustain that and they might try not to eat for four, five, six, seven days before the weigh-in um, and not drink anything either. So they're just putting their bodies through such stress and in actual fact, they just don't, it's, it's not necessary in 99% of circumstances. And if it is necessary, then they're, they're fighting in the wrong weight category. Um, and what are some of those consequences if they're doing some of these strategies that are going to be compromising? Yeah. You know, what are the consequences for them come fight night? Because you know, yeah. whether it's 24 or 36 hours later, it's not a lot of time to be able to... Yeah, I mean, you can have the... I think there's, there's two, con two main sections of the consequences. There's obviously the physiological, that, but then also the psychological as well. You know, particularly if that other person sees their, their opponent making the weight pretty well or having no real issues. So it has a psychological impact. Um, but obviously a physiological impact as well in, in terms of what you can actually replace in terms of the fluids and the fuel um, and really the degree of the stress that you've put the body under. Sometimes it's not always possible even using the best practices to get yourself back to that 100% state when you actually step into the ring. And for you, Scott, as the athlete, how does that actually feel in that week leading up to making weight? Some of the methods that, you know, Scott was going through then, you know, I've used in the past, you know, to, to have to hit the weight you know, there's certain things that, you know, you do to, as a fighter, you, all you think about is having to hit the weight and you, you know there's certain ways that it, it, it ain't good for you, but it's the only way, you, you know, because you're not educated and you haven't got the right people around you, it's the only way you're going to make the weight. And you know what, sometimes the, the consequences, like I said, can be, you know, it's getting beat, getting knocked out, and or, you know, you've you've seen in over the years, you know, fighters that have in combat sports that have, you know, had serious injuries, and you know, it's been life-threatening injuries, you know. So it's, you know, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing to do, and it's like now more people are more educated, and and people are, you know, more aware of and. There's more people like Scott giving advice to you know, to, especially to the younger fighters coming through now. Um, so hopefully, you know, them old school methods are getting pushed away for good. Uh, but like the the normally the week of the fight, I'm normally grumpy. Uh, no one will even come near me because. Um, angry and like say I'm grumpy, I'm snapping at people because wasn't, I used to cut down on my fluid, my food, um, and in my like I say my body and my mind would be under stress and I'd be very agitated. This camp, you know, since working with Scott, I'm smiling, I'm eating the week of the fight, um, fluid, drinking, I, I, I think it was on the when Tuesday and the Wednesday. I had two days of where I didn't do any training. I was just resting, and my weight still coming down because of the you know I'm eating the right food and my my metabolism's still you know running at a really good you know speed. So it was it's like night and day, and and I just wish I would have been working with Scott since the start of my career, or six years ago, you know, and they, because this camp, the, well, the last camp was the, probably the happiest camp that I've ever had due to, and the only difference was, was Scott. There you go, it's amazing, food. isn't it? The connection between the nutrition, mm -hmm. cognitive function, um, you know, that's such a strong aspect, as we talked about before, of mindset yeah. and everything else, and, yeah. you know, as you feel getting the nutrition on point was a big factor in being able to that, that Keep was, yourself level in that important week leading up to the weigh-in. Hundred percent. That that was the the food, the nutrition. I'm a big believer of that that's what for me anyway. That's what keeps me my mindset right. You know the, what I fuel my body with. You know that's how my body's gonna run. And, and any foods off limits in that week? Uh, things that we gotta yeah, cut out. But 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 but. but there's a few that are off limits, which obviously it will go into, but I was surprised that 
um, what, what, what day was it? It's the Wednesday, Wednesday two days out from the weigh-in. Yeah, two days out from the weigh-in. He turns back up to the hotel with a, a full tub of Halo Top. He says, he says, right, you can eat this. I said, ice cream. It's ice cream. <laughs> I said, are you sure? He went, yeah, yeah. You, you just go and go back to the room now. That's your, your treat. And I went to him and I said, well, if I step on the scales in the morning, <laughs> and you hear a knock on the door, I said, you best run, because that means he's no good. So I went back. for about two hours that night. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it did thing, and woke up lighter. And it, it, it goes to show that, you know, when, again, I don't second guess anything that he says because... So much nuance it, in there, right? If you're not yeah. being steered in the right direction, yeah. it's tough to know exactly where you're headed. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think it's uh, on that final, final week, you know, before the weigh-in, that's such a crucial time for boxers and it's a time that I've always said to Scott, look, during camp, we need to be 100% on it. So we map out every single meal, every single snack, uh, pretty much every single electrolyte, fluid, etc., so that we make sure everything's on point. And uh, it, at that stage, it's about making sure that we gain all the competitive advantages we can over the opponent before we step in the ring to give Scott that added confidence and know that, you know, subjectively he's feeling good, objectively with the testing markers, he's, he's, he's doing great, he's flying. But in that final week, that's when a lot of boxers, I feel, can trip themselves up um, and they can put their body under too much stress and, and just by either not eating food or eating the wrong types of foods. And it's in that final week that this is where the trust and, and buying is really tested. Um, you know, I've handed in that final week. I think the morning of the weigh-in you had um, Hershey's chocolate, right, yeah. Hershey's chocolate syrup, some banana on a, like a pancake or yeah. a, a something. And, um, and you couldn't quite believe it. And no, people were walking past you in the hotel just thinking, what's this guy doing? Is he giving up with the weight <laughs> or something? And, uh, but it, 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 for the final week, it's, it's just kind of flipping it on its head. So all throughout camp, we'll, we'll you know, provide nutrient-dense foods, high in you know, fibre, high in the right types of nutrients at the right times. Um, but in that final week, we pretty much flip it on its head in that we, we try to go for low-volume foods, low-fibre foods and low-salt foods, um, and relatively low-carbohydrate as well, which is when I get to a new venue, so the last fight Scott fought in Boston, I probably spent half my time in, in Whole Foods just yeah. looking at, you know, for these magical foods that fit that category. Um, but what that does is it really helps to somewhat artificially bring down the weight so Scott will still be eating. He'll be getting plenty of energy in. So for example, with the eggs, we'll do scrambled eggs or we'll do fried eggs, but we'll do, do it with olive oil because the actual weight of that meal is very low. It's low carbohydrate, low sodium, low fiber um, and low salt, but it's a high amount of energy if you put a good bit of olive oil in it too. So that keeps Scott's energy levels high. Um, and then with the ice cream, uh, just another example would be, you know, the, the ice cream that we chose was low fiber, it was relatively low carbohydrate, had a good amount of protein in it too, um, low salt. Um, and actually I said to Scott, you know, when you pick up that tub, yeah. does, how much does it weigh? And he said, oh, not very much. And then you see the, yeah. the cogs ticking and Scott's like, okay, so if I eat this, that's how much I'm actually going to put on. And I said, yeah, but between now and the morning, you'll process it and any money you'll come down downstairs weigh yourself and you'll be a pound or two lighter. So it's not about eating less during fight week, it's just about choosing the right types of foods at the right times, really. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick shout out to Athlete Performance Nutrition, who will be hosting the second annual Football Performance Nutrition Virtual Summit this June 13th to 15th. We've got our first wave of speakers booked for the summit. Scott Center of the Dallas Cowboys talking life in the trenches in pro football. John Parenti, Director of Nutrition for the Miami Dolphins talking halftime nutrition strategies. Dr. Kate Bumpa of the University of Dublin working in rugby union will be talking all about the new science of nutrition strategies for sleep. Kate Calloway, Director of Performance Nutrition for the Carolina Panthers will be discussing injury nutrition beyond collagen and calories. Abigail O'Connor, Director of Performance Nutrition for the University of Michigan We'll be chatting about modifying body composition, a team approach, and we've got a lot more speakers lined up. So join us June 13th to 15th. Register for free for this FPN virtual summit. Just head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits to register for free. 
That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits, S-U-M-M-I-T-S, for all the details and more great speakers to come. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Awesome. And then, you know, Reed, when we get into this weight cutting time frame before a fight, obviously you've done a lot of work in this area and uh, a lot of different strategies that are used and a lot of old school strategies, hopefully dying out, but obviously I'm sure you see are still being used. Can you talk a little bit about that manipulating body composition and weight cutting in MMA? Sure. So um, maybe I'll, I'll touch on kind of our um, uh, kind of best practice guidelines that we use, and then maybe we can talk about where people go wrong. Um, so, so in terms of like the, the, the way to do it, and this is the way that I explain it to coaches and athletes, like of given these presentations so many times and this is kind of the way it always comes out. It's like, you want to think about what is the body made up of? So what constitutes your body mass? Um, and, and specifically what constitutes your body mass that you can, um, actually manipulate. So obviously like, uh, you know, skin and blood and all this stuff contributes to body mass as well, but we can't consciously um, manipulate it. The things that we're going to manipulate is essentially going to be body fat, muscle mass, um, body water and then one that people often don't think about is gut content um, and then within body water I would also kind of throw glycogen in there because as you know, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware that you know a, a large portion of uh, stored glycogen is um, is water mm-hmm. so, so then we want to think about and this is what I talk to the coaches and athletes about which of these can we manipulate short term versus long term and so body fat and muscle mass we can change you can't get significant changes certainly in less than a week um, and you know, maybe several weeks. Even if you're absolutely starving yourself, what are you going to lose? You know, one to two kilos of fat in a week potentially. And in somebody who's already lean and on the back of a um, you know, few weeks or months of dieting, they're not even going to lose a kilogram of fat in a week, which comes down to what's that equals like 150 grams of fat per day, something like this. Whereas, um, whereas water, you know, we can shift, you know, three, four, five, six, seven percent of your body mass in a couple of hours. Um, and you know, like athletes particularly in team sports that train outside you know routinely do this in training sessions mm-hmm. um and and then in terms of gut content um and this is the way i explain it to people is like you know when we go to the toilet we're expelling um undigested uh you know food like plant matter fiber um and 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 so at, at any one period of time you might have and, and this varies depending on your habitual fiber consumption um, but, but in our experience in terms of how much weight people lose from adopting a low fiber diet you know it seems that people are storing one to two, maybe a little bit more uh, percent of their body mass in undigested, um, you know, food stuff sitting in their gut at any one time. So this is weight loss wow. that we can take advantage of. Um, and, and you know, in the past, a lot of people will make use of um, like laxatives or bowel preparation formulas to just blast it out. Um, alternatively, people just don't eat for three, three days or so, you know, and if you don't eat, you kind of pass all that's in your gut um, and, and, and you're left empty. Um, the disadvantage to all of this, of course, is that number one, a bowel preparation formula or a laxative um, doesn't feel great. Um, and, and like for an MMA fighter, if you've got about 30 hours between weighing and competition, maybe you recover before then. But certainly for the Olympic combat sports that are weighing in the night before competition or the morning of competition, you don't want to be taking a laxative, you know, six hours before you compete. Um, so a smarter way is just to adopt a low fiber diet. And so we've, you know, there's some kind of indirect uh, evidence in, in some of the work that we've done. Uh, and then also in the clinical literature, looking at our low fiber diets versus bowel preparation formulas. And it seems you can get the same weight loss um, and um, cleansing of the bowel from the adoption of like a two to four days of a low fiber intake as you would from taking a bowel preparation formula or a laxative. So, um, so, so, yeah, so that's one thing. So we've talked about kind of the water manipulation. Um, and then we talked about like the bowel, um, bowel emptying via a low fiber diet. Um, and then the last bit is the, the glycogen depletion. So, you know, just avoiding carbohydrates um, while, while still persisting uh, in training. And so this is the way that we do it just to kind of throw this all together. Depending on how far off weight the fighter is and what their kind of taper looks like, we'll kind of start the official um, weight cut, you know, anywhere from kind of seven to nine days out. And so the first thing that we do is um, is just cut carbs. So we might, and again, you know, the, the research says that maybe you can deplete glycogen in a couple of days, like, you know, 
I mean, maybe even in the A day, if you're going to, you know, do uh, several hours of, you know, endurance exercise. But the thing is, these guys are tapering in that last week, and we don't really want to be encouraging extra exercise um, if we can help it. Um, so, so yeah, so, so we'll essentially do low carb or, or close to no carbs for, you know, it, the earliest we would do it is probably seven to nine days out. Some guys will push it up until, you know, three or four days before because their weights are tracking pretty well. Um, yep. And during this time, you know, it's a lot of like high fiber foods and high water content foods, this sort of stuff to, to help the athlete feel full. And we can actually increase the fat intake in this stage. So when we're no longer kind of targeting those fat losses, so we can actually have them eating uh, to maintenance, maybe even higher. So often it's very counterintuitive to people that during the weight cut, this is the first time during their fight camp, they've actually been adequately fueled in terms of calories. Um, and that's because we're no longer targeting um, body fat losses. So you know, we're getting rid of the, the carbohydrate stores. Um, and then uh, maximum four days, minimum kind of two days, but, you know, average about three days out, we're going to cut fiber. Um, and, and so we cut fiber. Um, and essentially what the diet ends up looking like then is if you're not taking in any fiber and any carbohydrates, it's kind of a, um, in lieu of a better term, like a keto looking diet, you know, or mm-hmm. a... Um, I guess like a modified Atkins or something like this. It's just high protein, high fat, um, and, and a lot of fat. And with our athletes in Shanghai, we, we've tried to, you know, get the kind of one size fits all approach where, you know, instead of giving everyone a specific super prescribed diet, which maybe they will or won't follow, we just kind of want to give them guidelines. So we're just saying, don't eat this, eat this. And we actually encourage them to eat a lot of fat. So, you know, the amount of nuts and peanut butter and stuff these guys are eating, I mean, that last, in that last couple of days. <laughs> they must love it. Yeah. And, uh, and and then the final um, thing is is getting rid of the water. So um so with some of our guys, maybe they lose three to four percent of their body mass from cutting carbs, maybe one to three percent from cutting fiber, um, and then whatever's ever's left, they have to sweat. And so we'll um they will uh, cut fluid completely for about twenty four hours before weighing, um, and then they're going to do a sweat. Um you know using whatever method they prefer. So whether it's a sauna or a hot bath. Um, a lot of the athletes in China like to work it off. So they'll like throw on the sweatsuits and jog on a treadmill for a bit. We try and discourage that. Like we don't mind them doing a little bit. Um, but, you know, you certainly don't want somebody trying to run off three or four kilos um, when there's easier ways to do it. Um, so, so that's kind of our, our approach. And to kind of put it all together as well, like the, the amount that we like guys to lose is about 10% of their body mass through acute means. If they're 10% above their weight division, you know, seven to nine days out, we're pretty happy with them and that we can do it all acutely. And it's not, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not worried about them. When they get get above that, when they're 12% above their weight division, seven to nine days out, we're starting to get a bit worried. And with females, you know, we could probably talk for a long time as to why this is the case, but it seems to be that those recommended um, percentages above weight division should be dropped by one or 2%. So 10% for, for a male seems to be a lot easier than 10% for a female. So we'd probably rather the girls be about 8%. And so that's the best practice. We can talk about some of the, um, uh, you know, uh, more harmful methods that people use, if you like, but I think I've walked on for a bit, so you let me know. <laughs> no, no worries. Well, listen, in terms of the females having that lesser you know, that 8% range, you know, in your opinion, any particular reasons why that would be lower in females than men? Yeah, I mean, I th- like, um, so generally females are not going to be as lean as males, and therefore they're not going to be carrying as much muscle mass um, at, at a given weight. So, and, and we know that muscle is water, so there's less water for them to lose. Also, they're probably um, storing less glycogen, given the fact that um, you know glycogen makes up a certain percentage of um, of uh, kind of skeletal muscle weight. So, so right there, you've got kind of um, you know uh, total body water content and total glycogen content. Um, and then also, females tend to have higher or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're, the onset of sweating doesn't occur until later in a uh, you know kind of um, thermally challenging environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and their sweat rates are lower as well. So, so even just those factors before you even get into the hormonal, um, you know, differences, which, which certainly could play a role. Um, that, in, in my mind, would easily explain one to two percent of their body mass. Reed, you've obviously done a lot of work with water loading for acute weight loss. You know, how does that fit into the equation? Of, are there still aggressive water loading strategies that are used with some professional fighters? Is it more, as you mentioned, when you get 
that 10% range and you've hit those fundamentals leading up to, to fight night, you, you know, you should be in a good situation. How does that shake out? Yeah. Um, so, so I think of it as another tool in the tool belt and, um, and people have made weight for years without using water loading and they're going to make weight for years without using water loading. So um, I certainly don't think it's a, a mainstay of a acute weight loss um, program. However, what we say to our fighters, and it is very popular in MMA, even uh, Chinese MMA, you know, it's really popular. Um, we give them a recommended water loading protocol based on the research that we publish because we know that that's safe or at least in the context that we used it because um, obviously there's a risk of hyponatremia if you're consuming all this, uh, you know, extra For water. Sure. Um, so, so we kind of give them those guidelines where we say maximum, you know, 100 mil per kilogram, so 70 kilogram athlete, seven, seven liters per day. Um, and we give them that protocol just so they've got some numbers to work with. But some people don't like doing the water loading or can't do the water loading. So our message to them is like, hey, here's a protocol that you can use. Whether you, you use it or not is up to you. But what we recommend is that you keep fluid high because what we don't want is them cutting out fluid too early. Um, and thankfully, most MMA athletes, I think, get this message, but certainly like uh, boxers um, and wrestlers, there, there tends to be a culture, um, you know, to like water taper, where maybe the last week, you know, they start cutting out water five to seven days out, like not completely, but they start to, you know, stepwise uh, reduce their, their fluid consumption. So our message around the water loading is that, hey, here's water loading if you want to do it. If you're not going to do it, um, please keep water high until that kind of 24 to 36 hours prior to weighing. Tremendous. And, you know, obviously, if we if we stick on the topic of, of water and hydration, hydration crucial for performance, both physically, mentally, we would think with combat sports, obviously, tremendously important as well. And some of the work that you've done in the past, whether we're using things like specific gravity with a urine dipstick or whether you're using other more advanced methods for assessing hydration, you know, how good or not so good are some of these methods in, in informing your practice? Yeah, yeah. Um... So I think uh, urine-specific gravity certainly has utility. I don't think it's um, like I wouldn't be prescribing, uh, you know, specific fluid intake recommendations based off it. But certainly where I see the real value in our urine-specific gravity is uh, number one is identifying athletes that um, have a problem, uh, you know, just with hydration in general. Like if we're doing USGs all throughout a week, and, you know, if some people are borderline what the kind of published guidelines would say is acceptable, maybe we don't worry about them, particularly if everything seems to be going well. But if you've got a guy who's consistently, you know, 1.03305 or, or whatever it is, you know, like definitely dehydrated consistently, um, then then that helps us identify that guy. Um, but, but aside from helping us, what I think it is is really great education for the athletes. And so, you know, it just kind of gives them... Um, a number and, and specifically the way we do it is you know make an excel report for them where we have uh you know colors like a uh green yellow red traffic light system um and and gives them those colors so if they see that they're in the red every day this week and then they start drinking a bit more and they see that uh color change from um r red to yellow to, to to green you know it's it, it develops really good buy-in with the athlete whereas maybe if you're just telling them to drink more um, and then they drink more and there's, mm. you know, there's, there, there's no change for them in terms of the way they're, they're performing or whatever. Um, you know, it's a little bit harder to sell that message. So I definitely see it as a great um, education tool. Uh, th th there's a lot of problems with it um, in terms of, you know, actually, particularly people that are kind of close to, to these cutoffs in determining whether they are dehydrated or not. And we kind of published um, a a review paper which highlighted a lot of these concerns so, so that's usg um and then some of the better ones of course is like um uh, plasma sodium but we, we certainly don't use that in, in routine practice but in, in terms of research setting it's, it's it's likely better than usg right absolutely and obviously we'll include all the links to, the, to your work here in the, in the summary notes for the podcast here and you know having worked in this in this domain for so long and, and the Gatorade Sports Institute growing up as a, as a fighter yourself, mixed martial arts, uh, BJJ, and now with the UFC, you know, what are some of the things that you've learned, whether it's from the athlete side and, and then informing the practice or, or vice versa and working with elite athletes over that time? Yeah. I mean, this is true in all sports nutrition. Um, but, but really, really important with, um, with fighting sports. It's, you have to get buy-in 
you have to show these athletes that number one, you're on their side, you understand them, you know, you need to learn as much about the culture as possible. I would say, like, there's got to be exceptions, but I would say the vast, vast majority of people that are successful in this space have got experience in it. Um, and, you know, there's there's no better way to understand the culture of, of a sport than to, to do the sport. Um, but but aside from MMA, you know, this this applies uh, across the board. You've got to get buy-in. You've got to, like, convince the athletes that, um, you know, that you know what you're on about, that you've got their interests at heart um, and, and that, you know, you, you're on their side. And sometimes, you know, you have to let things go. You've got to pick your battles. You know, you can kind of – the athlete comes in with a list of 15 different supplements that you know that 14 of them are rubbish. Um but, uh, you know, you've got to kind of bite your tongue a little bit. Can't throw them all away at yeah, once. Yeah, exactly. You've got to kind of, you know, get get some wins up your sleeve with them first before you can talk to them about the supplements. And, you know, like the, the, the weight cutting is a really good one because, you know, a lot of people have got these crazy old school methods of doing it. And then you show them a more structured, um, modern approach. And, you know, that's instant um, feedback when they do the weight cut and it was easier. Um, and, and, you know, they made weight like it was just a walk in the park compared to the way they've done it in the past. That's going to get you that buy-in to then talk to them about the supplements. So, so that's one is that buy-in is very important. And then the other thing that I've learned along the way and what my PhD kind of focused on when, and what I talk about when I, whenever I speak to um, kind of up and coming nutritionists and, and dietitians in this space is uh, the need to be pragmatic. Um, and, you know, this is, more so true in in combat sports because of the um the the, the weight cutting than in other sports but you know there's optimal and then there's realistic and it's like you, you've got to get the job done and you definitely I, I wouldn't even say may need to sacrifice optimal I, I would say in every situation you're sacrificing what you think might be optimal in order to to get the job done with the specific athlete in front of you um and, and you know a classic example of this is just weight cutting in itself like all of the health professionals, I mean, I'm, I'm saying all that's generalizing, but, you know, a lot of the health professionals and medical boards and all this would say that weight cutting is crazy. People shouldn't do it. You should walk around at the weight that you fight at and, and, and all the rest. But, um, you know, people winning world championships in weight category sports do not walk around at their weight division. Um, and, and, and athletes know this. And there's definitely a performance benefit um, to cutting weight. Now, it's not to say that the more weight you cut, the better. Um, but certainly if you're not cutting any weight, uh, and you're competing in a sport with a, you know, window between weighing and competition of, you know, 24 to 30 hours, um, there's, you know, ample opportunity to cut and recover weight. And if you're not doing it, you're giving an advantage to your opponent. Um, so you've got to be pr- pragmatic and, and understand the kind of realistic nature of, of, of what's going on. So I'd say the biggest things is uh, get buy-in with the athletes and be pragmatic. If we, if we stay on the caloric deficit side of things here, you know, obviously classically this idea of 500 kcals per day over the course of a week, you know, leads to this gain or loss, in this case a loss of, of, of body fat. Can you talk about that as a, a general um, way to think of things and, and how individuals may differ in their in their responses? Yeah, that, that's that's kind of in the, the classic rule. You know, if you, you generate an energy deficit of 3,500 calories, which is roughly... Uh, the amount of calories that should be in a pound of adipose tissue, uh, knowing that that fat tissue isn't completely fat, there's some water in there, and then multiplying the number of grams by nine, you get roughly 3,500. And it's it's a decent proxy. Um, the issue, though, and if you look at some of the research by Kevin Hall, is that um, you can't just look at it as math. You know, if you simply create an energy deficit of 500 um, and then expect yourself to lose a pound continuously, uh, that, that just doesn't happen in, in the real world and there's a number of reasons for that is one uh, people aren't great at estimating their caloric intake food labels aren't incredibly accurate they also tend to overestimate their energy expenditure um, and on the other side of it the energy expenditure actually changes in response to energy intake so there's immediate drops in the thermic effect of food you know you're eating less food so it takes less total energy to process it it's a small amount but it's still there and then more significantly, things like non-exercise activity thermogenesis, just how much you move on a day-to-day basis goes down. And also, as you lose weight, you're moving less mass, so you're going to burn less calories moving. And at a micro level, things like muscular efficiency increase. So you're burning, you require less ATP for the same level of movement to some small degree, which adds up over time. And kind of the, uh, the overarching name for all that at the same time is what's called adaptive thermogenesis. And you can have huge responses in, in some individuals and very small responses in others. So 
this could be on average probably, you know, after you've lost, say, 10 pounds, you're burning about 15% calories less than you'd expect at a given body weight. But if you go out two standard deviations from that to cover kind of like 95% of people, that means some unlucky folks out there after they've dieted are going to be burning about two-thirds of the calories you'd expect them to. So the math doesn't always add up on an individual basis. So you have to look at it as a more of a dy dynamic thing and adjust the calories as needed to keep at a consistent level of weight loss. So I like to focus more on initially setting up your calories based on that kind of loose guideline, the 3,500 calorie rule, if you will, yep. and then making adjustments over time. And I think a, a decent rule of thumb for someone who's not overweight is you want to lose about 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week. And if you're not seeing that, that's when you can make kind of those 100, 150 calorie shifts uh, downward when you're uh, you know a little below or likewise, if you're above that target, you can add more calories back in because losing too quickly is a pretty uh, good predictor of uh, unnecessary lean body mass losses. Yeah, I was going to ask, obviously, I mean, in the trainers working with general population, especially, you know, people want to see this dramatic and quick um, transformation in terms of body composition. So when we see some of these, you know, dramatic caloric deficits, what's the potential pitfalls for people in terms of trying to lose weight? That's a great question, you know, and, and this is an interesting one because there's some research showing that when you have an overweight individual who's significantly overweight, probably obese, um, faster weight loss initially does predict success long term. But that's not the case when you're dealing with someone who's just slightly overweight or an athlete trying to lose weight or someone who's just trying to maintain a leaner physique, you know, uh, and, and if you think about it, that makes sense. You know, when you have Everest to climb, uh, being able to make some quick progress makes the rest of it feel doable. Uh, and taking these small steps when you're looking up and going, man, that's a tall mountain, can be quite discouraging. Um, so certainly there, there, there's a time and a place for faster weight loss. But when, I, when I'm talking faster weight loss, I don't, I don't mean biggest loser stuff, you know. And, sure. uh, you know, as a personal trainer, one of the most frustrating things is when you have someone come in and you give them, you set some realistic expectations and they're, so far from from what the person is expecting as to be discouraging um, you know when someone watches you know these contestants on biggest loser discs I'm picking on them right now losing you know 10 to 20 pounds a week to start and you tell them hey we can go go at a good clip and lose two to three pounds per week at the start you know that that's that's really fast if you think about it I mean you're losing more than 10 pounds a month at that speed Absolutely. and and you know and and that probably should slow down over time uh, but when they're expecting that per week, uh, I think that can be discouraging. So I, I think it's really important to to set realistic expectations to know uh, the, the the probable uh, issues of with trying to lose that fast. You know, if you are indeed losing as fast as you possibly can, it's just simply not sustainable. Uh, and if you look at the hard facts, which are pretty discouraging, um, almost everybody can lose weight. Uh, the problem is, is they gain it back. You know, within within one to two years, we're looking at like a 90% recidivism, basically, of going back to or above the starting body weight uh, that, that people lost. And I think a large part of this is that the, the fitness industry pushes um, quick fixes, and it doesn't do a good job of promoting lifestyle change. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to really kind of conceptualize early on that, hold on, my entire life, I now plan to be eating healthy and exercising. Uh, it's much more easy just for the human brain to focus on the next 12 weeks. And if you're going to only focus on 12 weeks, well, you better damn make, make sure you make a difference. But the problem is, is that there's no game plan after those 12 weeks. You tend to just slide backwards. And you combine that with adaptive thermogenesis and increases in hunger from being restricted. And sometimes you see people end up worse off than when they started. Yeah, it's definitely, especially in the general population with the environment being laden with so many hyper palatable foods too. once that hunger kicks up it's pretty difficult to uh, to offset that now if we're talking bodybuilders or figure competitors and we're you know how do they game plan things when they're so many months out of a competition is there a general rule of thumb in terms of you know the amount of months and again the the, the weight loss per week yeah absolutely and and you know bodybuilding is, is an interesting thing because the the standards for competition have changed over time you know if you were to look back even a couple decades, the standard length diet would be like about 12 weeks. Um, and then a long diet would be 16 weeks. And you still see that sometimes in the drug using side of the sport, but among the, uh, the tested side of the sport, when you're dealing with uh, drug-free lifters uh, and competitors, 
that is typically a recipe for, for not getting lean enough or if you do get lean enough, going through hell to get there. Uh, and typically not, not showing up on stage looking full with all the muscle mass you started with. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's important to realize that the difference between bodybuilding in the 1980s was that no one even really knew that glutes were striated, you know, in, in male bodybuilding. And nowadays, the standard for conditioning is so high that, that you really have to have the complete absence of visible body fat to do well. Um, that means you need to have striations in your glutes, veins in, in, in your abs and in your inner thigh, complete separation everywhere. And, and what that means is that when you look at someone, your standard fitness model on, on the cover of a magazine, uh, that if they're a male, they're probably 10 to 15 pounds over stage weight, is, which is surprising given how good they look. Uh, and that was a and that was about what you would need, the kind of shape you'd need to get in to compete in, say, the 70s or 80s. So there's uh, just more fat to lose uh, to be competitive, and that means you need to take longer to do it. And as you get leaner and leaner, losing fat becomes harder and harder. Because if you think about it, you know, when you're, uh, let's say you competed 170 pounds and you start your diet at, uh, you know, 200 pounds, you've got 30 pounds to lose. But those one pound of those 30 pounds is a small percentage when you weigh 200. But when you're 175, losing one pound is a fifth of the body fat you need to lose. So expecting to be able to do it in the same amount of time and, and expecting that to have the same effects on your body because fat is not inert tissue. You know, it, it produces uh, hormones and it has a large impact on things like satiety, uh, things like hormonal production in your body, um, this, the nervous system, all, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, the, the way you feel at the end of a diet, uh, even when you do things right uh, for a bodybuilder, is, is, is pretty miserable at times. So game planning is very important. So I think the, the average length of a diet for uh, a male competitive bodybuilder these days is about six months. And for women, it tends to be more like seven. Um, if they're, depending on the division they compete in, not all of them require you to get as lean. But for getting maximally lean, say if you're a female bodybuilder uh, or a male bodybuilder, we're looking at six or seven months or so. Um, and that means, okay, well then there's going to be a recovery period because this is pretty rough on the body and that typically takes about, you know, two to three months before everything is, you, you start to feel human again. And if you think about it, that, that leaves you with, you know, four months before the next season starts before you have to diet again. So you, you see a trend these days of people competing every other year or taking long off seasons and really the folks who, uh, should be competing every year or who, who can get away with it. Uh, and who still do well are, are the pros who have, you know, really kind of built built their physique for the most part. And it's more about retaining a title um, and, you know, only being able to make small improvements anyway. Uh, it's not the end of the world if, if they don't have much of an off season. And they've also refined their diet so they can be more efficient, effective, and, and they're good at getting uh, recovered quickly. So I think there's a, a big shift that's, that's occurred, uh, especially in the, the natural side of the sport in the last uh, 10, 15 years as the requirements for, for success have, have, have become more extreme. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially well, obviously the, the stress involved in, in terms of, of cutting and, and, and training at that level. And if, you know, shifting gears here to a different macro in terms of carbohydrates, um, obviously a, a strategy that can be employed is reducing carbohydrates sometimes significantly, but what are some of the consequences of, of insufficient carbon take if, if athletes or bodybuilders are still training uh, you know, in, intensely and trying to grow? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, carbohydrate is, um, is important to some degree for bodybuilders. I, I would say it's not as important as you is for an athlete with a much higher energy expenditure. You know, if you are a soccer player or if you're a marathon runner, uh, the kind of carbohydrate intake and also the, the, the subsequent energy intake from taking in a high level of carbohydrate is going to be a lot higher uh, and should be a lot higher if you really want to maximize performance based on what we know. Now, for a bodybuilder, sure, they are anaerobic athletes. You know, you're probably training anywhere in the, you know, 4 to 20 rep range for, for most of the time. And some of that will certainly deplete glycogen, uh, glycogen being the, the, you know, the stored form of, of, of carbohydrate in humans. Um, and, you know, depending on how much volume you're doing, you know, uh, a weight training session can deplete, say, you know, maybe 10 to 30 percent of the local muscle glycogen. Um, and that, that is enough to induce fatigue. Uh, now, you might think, oh, that, that's a big deal. But the thing is, is you're also not typically training the same muscle group again, you know, within the same day. You know, if, if you have a normal day of eating, you wake up, 
you have breakfast the next day and then you go train again, that, that local muscle glycogen is probably completely, if not all the way replenished if you're on a normal diet. Um, now when you're dieting, that, that's a different scenario, you know, because you have a obligatory reduction of calories, that means you're going to have to find somewhere for it to cut from. And carbohydrates is, is often one of, but not the only culprit. Typically it's, you know, both fat and carbohydrates that have to come down at some point in the diet. Yep. Um, and so, so then, then you're dealing with, okay, I'm, I'm, I am depleting glycogen in the training and I am, uh, restricting carbohydrate to some degree. So maybe I am running into some issues with glycogen. Um, even though I'm only training, let's say, each muscle group two to three times per week, I'm kind of in this chronically depleted state. And especially when it comes to the lower body, I'm also doing cardio, typically, at some point. Uh, so that, that's why it's important to modulate the intensity of cardio, to, to kind of think about how it fits in with the rest of your training. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of doing um, a lot of like high-intensity cardio for bodybuilders uh, because of the potential interference effect on training, especially during dieting. So uh, I think there's a time and place for some of it, but it needs to be carefully planned. Um, and for this reason, you want to try to, for the most part, diet on as many carbohydrates as you can with a big emphasis on you. Because some people... <laughs> personalized approach becomes key, right? Exactly. You know, I've, I've had clients who that means, you know, they're, they're getting down to under 100 grams. I've had clients who are on their low days above 300 grams. And that's not just due to... Uh, to body mass or activity levels. There are definitely individual differences. Um, you know, we've got a, a fair amount of research now that shows that uh, insulin resistance or sensitivity uh, can predict whether or not you would be more successful on a lower or higher carb diet um, and co-committantly a, a lower or higher fat intake, vice versa kind of thing. Now, not to say that I think many bodybuilders are insulin resistant. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. You know, they're, they're typically healthy, lean, health conscious people who are quite active. Um, but there's a lot of things that goes into that beyond just those factors. You know, your, your age, uh, your genetic history, uh, your ethnicity, even these are all things that can affect the way you metabolize carbohydrates. So, um, we can't really predict very well, uh, whether or not you would respond better to one or the other, but there's always trial and error. And, uh, you know, typically that means you're going to be somewhere in the range of, you know, a gram per pound up to maybe two or three grams per pound, depending on the individual, uh, in, in the, in say the off season and then maybe shift that down a little bit, uh, another half a half a gram per pound or so, or, or, or a full gram per pound when you're dieting, um, with some, some reduction in fat as well, but you can only go so low for each one of the macronutrients. You, you probably don't want to be cutting protein. Um, and you don't want to cut carbs so low that you end up sacrificing your training quality and your muscle fullness. Um, and you also don't want to cut your fat too low because then you start to have issues with, fat-soluble vitamins. You can have issues with uh, hormone production. You can have issues uh, with with just mouthfeel and satiety and not feeling uh, and having adherence problems with, with low-fat diets. But um, as long as it's a temporary period, you can get away with a drastic cut in any one of those areas. So it's important to kind of periodize your diet. I use intermittent diet breaks as, as a way to get around this, uh, high days and low days, so that, you know, we might go five, five low days in a row, then and two high days to replenish glycogen and, and just replenish sanity uh, before diving in again. And, and these seem to be pretty important for, for getting through a diet that has to last as long as it does. Um, if we could actually just circle back, you mentioned that obviously the fats and, and the connection between dietary fat and some metabolic hormones. You know, how does lowering fat intake, if someone were to go that road or to, you know, perhaps it's in the lead up to competition, how does that impact uh, things like testosterone levels potentially? Yeah, that there's been there's been some lines of research looking at that, and uh, you certainly can see uh, if your fat intake is too low or if other things are too low. Uh, there, there's actually a lot of complex variables that go into testosterone production. Um, but the thing, the most impactful thing on on your hormone levels is the deficit itself in dieting, and uh, I, I don't want anyone to think that oh, okay, if I can just maintain you know, uh, one gram per kilo of, of fat intake or, or higher throughout my whole diet that my testosterone is going to be intact. It most definitely will not. Um, I've seen, there's, there's a handful of case studies now that have been published on bodybuilders, natural bodybuilders going through in a, a whole prep. And for the most part, whenever they measure hormones, they see reductions uh, in testosterone pretty significantly regardless of the macronutrient breakdown. So I think it's more of an issue of just, just you just don't want to go too low, not to think like, oh, if I just keep my fat high, it'll preserve everything. It, it, it won't. You know, A lot of this is a consequence of 
a starvation and a deficit. With that said, I think um, based on the, the limited data we have, you probably don't want to go below, say, like 0.5 grams per kg as a fat intake. And that's that's still pretty low. And I try, I would like to not to get there in the first place. Um, but in the end, when you're dieting for a show, you're going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul. There's really no way around it. For sure. uh, in most cases, one of your macronutrients or the amount of cardio you're doing or both is going to have to be in a position where you don't want it to be. Uh, or you'd be walking around lean all the time, right? So so it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of, of what's the least, what's the lesser of two evils. And I often do this less on, you know, hypothetical guesses about what it's going to do to someone's hormone levels and more so based on what do they think they can handle and uh, how does it fit with their lives, what's, where's their stress levels, etc. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full video interviews, then check out the show notes at athleteperformancenutrition.com. Scroll down on the podcast tab and you'll find the full episodes and the research paper links. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.